Let's stand together today and open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us such great hope and pray that your living word would penetrate into our hearts today and touch our spirits today. For the believer, the one who's come to this born-again experience in you, affirm their faith, affirm their, and, and, and Father, strengthen their faith. And for anyone who's wondering about these things today, reveal yourself to them by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we are blessed to have the books of the Bible that we have. The books of, uh, the books of, of Luke and Acts are very interesting books in, in, the, in this fact. Luke wrote these books uh, to a person, somebody who had uh, some great influence in his life, some relationship with him, a guy named uh, Theophilus. Theophilus had come to understand the teachings about Jesus, had been taught many things about Jesus, but he had a very good attribute. He wanted to know more. And he had asked for Luke to tell him more. Luke had a very good attribute and that Luke didn't just give him a cursory answer. He wrote the book of Luke to tell Theophilus about Jesus and what Jesus had taught to firm up his faith, to help him believe in in deeper and deeper measure. And then sometime after that, uh, we don't know how it got started. Maybe, maybe Theophilus asked, well, what, what happened next? Uh, he writes to him the book of Acts and tells him what happens after that. So as the book of Acts begins, Jesus has been resurrected. He's revealing himself to the disciples. And he's spending time with them teaching them things they need to understand. He's helping them put, you know, connect all the dots from what he, what he did when he was here to what he did on the cross to the resurrection to the hope of the second coming. Jesus is helping all of those things come together by spending time with these men and women who were called to be his witnesses. And he's preparing them. At the end of his time uh, that he's there uh, with them, he, uh, he tells them, now listen, I'm about to leave. I'm going to go to be with the Father. You're going to be left here to be my witnesses, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait there. I want you to stay there. Wait, pray, seek me until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. And so when he, in Acts chapter 1, when he goes into the heavens, they, many of them go back to Jerusalem and they begin to wait. During that waiting period, they say, hey, there was only 11 of us who were really close 
to him that are left. Judas has killed himself. They select another person to be an apostle, but they are really in the process of just waiting. And we come to the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is, is one of the three major festivals that the Jewish people celebrate. It was a harvest festival, a first fruits festival that they would celebrate, that they were called to celebrate. And so this day has come where people have now come into Jerusalem from all over Israel and probably from even further out than that. They have come in to celebrate this great uh, festival of Pentecost. And the disciples are still in the midst of waiting on this power to come upon them. And 50 days after the, 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 the Passover, when the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit falls in the upper room. And these men and women are filled with the Holy Spirit, touched by the Holy Spirit, now empowered by the Holy Spirit to the point that their praise and worship spills out into the city. And the people that are there from all over the place are hearing them speak in their language. And they're proclaiming the glory of God. And finally, in the midst of this, Peter steps up because there's confusion about what's going on. And he preaches a message to the people that are listening to him. He's, he, it's a vast crowd. And you can read that message in its entirety when you get home today in Acts uh, chapter 2. But here is this passage we read today is one part of that message. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He's appealing to the knowledge of what they've experienced when Jesus was on this earth. Many of these people would have seen the miracles. They would have been a witness to the miracles. They knew the things that Jesus had done. And he's, he's, once again, he's proclaiming to them, Jesus was witness to you, attested to you by God to be his son by the power of God that flowed through him to do miracles that you yourselves know. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. He says God did this on purpose. This didn't catch God by surprise. But God did this on purpose. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friend, at the end of this message, the Bible tells us that 3,000 people came to Christ that day. That's quite an altar call, isn't it? What a transforming moment as these people who had seen what Jesus had done had heard, seen what was going on now as the power of the Holy Spirit moved. We have this great influx into the kingdom as the church begins to flourish and begins to grow. You know, we're, we're, we're indebted to Theophilus. We're indebted to Luke to know this story and to hear this. And I want to call you to be like them, to be serious to learn and serious if you're a Christian to teach uh, that, that others can know. 
Because we need to pay attention to these things. They, they make an eternal difference. Have you ever heard somebody say, uh, well, that's the last thing you want. Now, I, I've said that to people at times. You know, somebody will say to you, no, I picked up my tux uh, for the wedding and went to put, went, took it home and was getting ready to go uh, to, the, to the wedding. And I put it on, and guess what? It didn't fit. It didn't fit. And somebody will go, that's the last thing you want. And, and, and it's, it's a bad thing, right? It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But is it really the last thing you want? Now, I ordered a pizza with sausage and ham and got it home and opened it up and it was onions and mushrooms. Well, that's the last thing you want. Well, okay, it's not good. It's not what you ordered. Is it really the last thing you want? I was out driving in the country and I ran out of gas. Oh, man, that's bad. That, that's the last thing you want to have happen. Is it really the last thing you want to have happen? Really the last thing you want? Hey, I've got the flu. Oh, I'm so sorry you got the flu. That's the last thing you want. Really? I mean, the flu's bad. Nobody wants the flu. But is it the last thing you want? Let, let me just, for your thought today, present to you what I think is the last thing you want. The real last thing that you want. The last thing that you want is to die and to discover that the God you have denied is real. And that Jesus, who you ignored, is everything he claimed to be. Now, friend, that's the last thing you want to have happen. And so our challenge to you, our call to you, is you need to give thought to the claims of the Bible. You need to talk to people who have been transformed by Jesus. You need to hear the testimony of people who have really lived with it. You need to be careful about how you listen to people who've not experienced and haven't discovered Jesus. I, I'm always amazed when I hear people say, and you'll see this sometimes on sitcoms or, or dramas on TV or some talking head on TV who thinks they're really smart, and, and they'll, say something, they'll, they'll, they'll say something like this, oh, Jesus is a myth. Jesus, he's a myth. You know, Jesus didn't really exist. He's a, he's a myth. And, and whenever I hear that, again, I always wonder, I wonder how many other historical figures do these people think are myths? Who, who else have they written off as not really existing? If I got up here today and I said to you, uh, folks, listen, I just want to tell you, just so you know, Henry Ford, Henry Ford, myth. Didn't really live, didn't exist, nothing to him. Some of you would take me out to your car today and say, Pastor, look right here. It says Ford right on the side of it. You, you might point out a Ford dealership and say, there's a Ford dealership down there. And, Pastor, it all traces back to this guy named Henry. You might look things up on the Internet and show me pictures and show me factories and say, listen, this guy Henry, he, he created the assembly line and he got this thing going. It, he exists. Now, if I kept coming in here week after week and saying, listen, I know some of you are defending Henry Ford, but I'm telling you, he's a myth. He's a myth. It wouldn't be long until some of you would be going, pastor has flipped out. <laughs> you know, he's lost it. You know, you wouldn't sit around 
just because somebody says that and go, oh, that changes my worldview. Before today, I thought Henry Ford existed, but pastor said he didn't exist, so he must not have. You, you wouldn't be going, oh, that, his argument is so overwhelming. He said he's a myth. I better just, I just better not believe he existed. You wouldn't do, it wouldn't be long if I kept promoting that, that I'd be sitting in a room with the elders, and they'd be saying, now, pastor, you're losing people here. Your credibility's getting lost here. You better stop this right now. What, pastor, is something wrong? Because, see, we have so much evidence around us. Have you, have you thought about this at all? I've never heard anybody say Confucius was a myth. You don't hear people say Buddha was a myth. Nobody says Muhammad is a myth. But they talk about Jesus being a myth. And we sometimes people sit and look like, well, how do we argue with them? How do we refute that? See, I, I want you to understand, there's a God of this age. The God of this age is what the Bible calls the father of all lies. His spirit, the, the, the spirit of the God of this age, does not only not want you to believe in Jesus, he wants you to be offended by the name of Jesus. You can look at other religions and other belief systems that, sh that there should be offense over and find people who should be offended by those belief systems, embracing and honoring those belief systems. And then you look at the belief system of what Jesus says about how we should treat each other and how we should see life and what our morals should be, and you find people who should be embracing those, attacking those belief systems. The, this is a spiritual thing. This is the spirit, the father of all lies, the spirit of the enemy who wants us to be offended by the truth, to deceive us, into a lie. And so my challenge to you today, wherever you're at, you're a new Christian, you're a new follower of Christ, you've been serving Christ for a while, keep pursuing his word. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, I don't know about all of this, start to listen and pay attention to people whose lives have been changed by the power of Jesus. Now, we sit today, we think about uh, evidence. The evidence of Jesus, what we have for the evidence of Jesus is greater than any of these other characters. I mean, nobody says Aristotle didn't exist, but we have more, more evidence of Jesus than we do of him. The evidence that comes to support Jesus is tremendous. You sit in the middle of one of those places today that is evidence of Jesus. The church, people who come together, because they're, who proclaim that their lives have been changed by Jesus, who don't just talk, talk about him in, a, in, in a, an intellectual, a simply uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as something that we learn about, but people who proclaim, Jesus has touched me, his spirit has changed me, is one of the greatest evidences of the reality of who Jesus claimed to be. And today, millions of people, 
all around the world will gather together to celebrate the fact that they have been changed and transformed by a living Savior named Jesus. Amen? They will gather in stadiums. They will gather in tents. They will gather in buildings like this. In parts of the world where it's against the law to be a Christian, they will come together in homes with 10 or 15 people gathered together to quietly celebrate the hope that they have in the resurrected Jesus, risking their, their careers, risking jail, risking their lives, risking their families because Jesus has transformed them so thoroughly that they can't help but gather together some way and celebrate who Jesus is. They celebrate not just the message, but the work of Jesus in their life. Listen, the church did not spring to life from the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus were life-changing. The teachings of Jesus will bring you joy, will give you direction. We're supposed to become disciples. It's the living Word of God. It will build faith in your life. But that's not what the church sprang from. The church didn't spring from Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles confirmed who he was. They are witnessed by person after person in the Bible that tells us about the great things that he did and shows us the power of God. Peter proclaims it in this message when he says he was attested to you by God by these signs and these wonders that you yourself saw. And at the end of the day, 3,000 of them would give their life to Christ. But this is not where, where the church sprang from. The church did not even spring from the crucifixion, which brings us salvation, which gives us the hope of eternal life and is the very power of God and the very reason that Jesus came was to die on the cross so that the work could be finished and so that those of us who were separated by our sin nature from the presence of God could become, come back into relationship with God by the power of the blood of Jesus. But friends, I'm here to tell you, if those were the end of the story, if that's all that we had, most likely, most likely, the story of faith in Jesus would at least be, at, at, at best be, some sect of Judaism. The church springs into existence from the resurrection. Peter's sermon lays it out. It was not possible for death to hold him. We walk and live today by the power of the resurrection and the power of what God Jesus did for us on the cross and revealed to us through the resurrection. We walk today believing that death has no hold on us, that there is eternal life for every person who calls on his name, that that is true in every one of our lives because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation of the church and the evidence that all he said was true. The, re the resurrection gives the, the most hope to, to mankind because it teaches that there is eternal life. And when we have hope for a better place and you speak that mom's gone to a better place or dad's gone to a better place or my friend is now in a better place, friend, I hear, I'm here to tell you 
that hope rests solely in Jesus' name. It doesn't rest in our good wishes. It doesn't rest in our love for that person. It doesn't rest in how many good things they did and how many people they helped. Friend, it rests in one thing alone. I have hope that my loved ones are in a better place today that have gone before me. I have hope that there's a better place for me when my time on this earth comes, comes not because of any work that I do or any teaching that I've learned. I have hope in that because of the power of the resurrection that lives in my spirit today. Jesus taught that mankind is a special creation of God. You are a special creation of God. That we were created with free will and that we were created with eternal existence upon us. That mankind was supposed to use that free will to freely love and worship God and to walk in communion with him. But mankind lost that connection with God by using that free will to rebel against what God said. And that separation, that rebellion, has been passed down from our forefathers from generation to generation to generation to us today. And friend, the reason we have all the pain all the suffering that we have in the world today, friends, it comes from that moment when we chose to rebel against God and when mankind lost his connection with God. But then comes this greatest message of the Bible, that Jesus came to pay the price for our rebellion, for our selfishness, for our self leading and our ignoring of God and our disconnect with God, paying the price for that so that we could be what the Bible calls born again, reconnected with the very Spirit of God. And the Bible says faith in Jesus brings new life and brings eternal life. Now, I hear a lot of people say, you hear this on when, when people talk about Christianity, I, I even hear Christians say this sometimes. They'll say, well, what's the, what's the fundamental message of the Bible? And they'll say, well, the fundamental message of the Bible is love. And, and yet I think there's a kind of a, a, a twisted concept of how we see that. Most of us, when we say, well, defend that, say what, what, what you do, they'll, they'll quote this passage in Matthew where Jesus is being questioned. And the man says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, <laughs> that's the great commandment. That's the great, the great, that, that's, that's what we're supposed to be like. That's what is supposed to happen in us and the way we're supposed to live when we're really followers of Christ and we've been transformed by him. But here's the fundamental message. Here's the great message of the Bible. The great message of the Bible is this. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the most important message of the Bible, that God loves the world. He loves the world. It's not a race. He hasn't said, I love this race. I don't care about the other races. It's not this nationality. I love this nationality. I don't love the other nationalities. It doesn't say, well, I love men, but I don't love women, or I love women, I don't love men. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, I love those who are good in their actions. He says he loves the world. He wants the best for the world. He loves the world generally, and he loves the world specifically. He loves you. He loves you. Maybe, maybe you've never had anybody else who's loved you, but God loves you. You may have done things that make, would make you think today that how could God love me? I'm telling you, he loves you today. His love is greater than your failure. His love is greater than your sin. He loves you and wants the best for you. He wants to draw close to you because that's what love does. Love wants to be in relationship. Love wants to draw close. He doesn't want you to have a relationship with him through me. He doesn't want you to have a relationship with him through some other religious leader. He doesn't want you to have a relationship with him through your parents or through somebody else. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants to walk with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to sense his power in your life. He wants to move in your life and do great things in your life. He wants to touch your life. You know, there's some aspects of, of love that I think are, maybe you can understand it, but when I was a kid, uh, you know, my parents would say to me something sometimes, I'd rather go through this than, than you go through it. And, uh, you know, I thought I understood that, but I, I didn't understand that until I had kids. And I remember taking, you know, our babies in to get, you know, a shot or something at the doctor. And uh, they didn't like it at all. And I understood, I'd rather take that shot than them have to take it. Have you been there, Mom and Dad? I'd rather take that than them have to take it. There's ne never, they've never done anything. And they've done some foolish things, and at times my kids have done some sinful things. My kids have been annoying sometimes. They've been great most of the time, thankful for them. But they've never done anything that I wasn't willing to forgive them of because I love them. I love them. They've never asked for anything that if I thought it was good for them and I had the ability to give it to them, that I wouldn't give to them. And I'm a man filled with selfishness and flaws, stumbling man. But I love my kids. And I want the best for them. And the Bible tells us of those of us who are of a sin nature, want the best for our kids, how much more does God who is perfect, who has no flaw in him, no shadow of selfishness about him, how much more does he want the best for us? 
And he's showing, shown that to us by saying, you know the penalty that you owe? I'm going to come. My son's going to come. And he's going to pay that price for you. He's going to pay that price for you. He wants to show his love to you. You were meant to walk in that communion with him. But we were born of a fallen race, a people doing, doing things selfishly, and the evidence of that selfishness, the evidence of that brokenness is all around us. We see the evidence of that brokenness globally in the way nations deal with nations and peoples deal with peoples. We see the evidence of that brokenness today in our nation as people wander and can't find the truth together. We find it locally in the security of our own local environments. We find the brokenness of that selfishness many times in our homes when people say and do and act selfishly. And we find it in our lives. Our flesh leans towards the selfish and the corrupt. Do you see it? All of it says to us is that we need God and the world needs God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's the key. He gave his son out of love so that we could have eternal life. Dear friend, you've got to put your belief in him. This isn't just a belief that he exists. This isn't just a knowledge that Jesus is out there someplace. This is a belief that he is the son of God and he's made a way for us to be healed that we are sinners fallen from him and we need his grace upon our, on our lives and that we can be made whole at Calvary and we can experience his resurrection power. We've got to surrender our life wholly and completely to him and put our faith in him. That resurrection power is ours. This is the spiritual work he does in us. In Romans chapter 10 it says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on his name? Have you put your belief in him? Eternal life is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We come here to celebrate his resurrection power in our life. And maybe you've been invited here by a friend or by a, by a relative, because they want to make sure you've experienced eternal life. We're telling you, you don't want to, the last thing you want is to go into eternity without having seriously considered the claims of Jesus in your life.